Terrible. Steve Orlins, you captivated the audience this morning at the Carter Centre with your Chinese, and you made me sit up because you very self-deprecatingly described yourself as a xiao tu dou, which of course in English means small potato. You started life as a so-called small potato, though people who describe themselves as such never really are. In the legal department at that time, over at the State Department, right, U.S. State Department, the、yeah. U.S. State Department. Tell me about life over then, and what brought you into contact with China? Which stage of your life, and also why you wanted to? Because, of course, there are more than 190 countries out there today. Well, it was in, you know, in the.、Um, I mean, I, it starts way back. It, it starts with my family. You know, my my mother was an immigrant to the United States. My paternal grandparents were immigrants to the United States. I grew up in a family where we were taught, but for the American government and the American people, we don't exist. We would have perished in Europe. They were European immigrants, Jewish immigrants. And they would have died, you know, under the Nazis or in a Russian pogrom. So they said, "You, my brother, sister, and I owed a owed a debt of service to the American people." So I grew up thinking that I would go to West Point. The war in Vietnam intervened, and I decided not. It's not what the route I wanted to take. I was very anti-war, as you doubtlessly detected from my comments,、um, and I ended up going to Harvard College, and then in. April 30th, 1970,、uh, President Nixon announced the invasion of Cambodia,、uh, the extension of the American war in Vietnam from Vietnam into Cambodia. Harvard erupted in protest. The protest was so terrible that、uh, the school ended up canceling classes. So on the last day. I was at Harvard. I went to an August professor and I said, "I want to understand why good people, the American government, do bad things. The war in Vietnam. So I want to study Vietnamese." He said, "Steve, if you really want to understand Asia, if you really want to understand what's gone on there, you should study Chinese." And he turned to go away, and then he turned and back, and he looked at me. He says, "And by the way, if you want to study Chinese, I'll get you a fellowship." Come to my office tomorrow. So this entire conversation lasted less than 60 seconds.、Uh, I went to his office the next day. I filled out a form for a National Defense Foreign Language grant, which I was then given about three weeks later, and, and started the the study of Chinese. So it began this less than 60 second conversation began a lifelong relationship with China. So when I graduated college, I decided to perfect my Chinese by going to Taiwan, where I only spoke Chinese for about 15 months, and then went to Harvard Law School. When I graduated law school, I joined the State Department. The State Department、um, discovered after about a year、uh, that we had this Chinese-speaking lawyer in the legal advisor's office. So I was then put on the team. Uh, that was going to help establish the relation,、uh, the diplomatic relations with China. President Carter,、um, early on,、uh, decided we were going to do this. So I was put on a team where the interesting part, and why I call myself a xiao tu dou, is there were a lot of、uh, chiefs and very few Indians. So as one of the few Indians, I got to do things which, for a twenty-seven, twenty-eight-year-old, were truly extraordinary. 
Yesterday, I had a free day here in Atlanta, and I wanted to understand a bit more about the social fabric of American life. So I went to the National Center on Civil and Human Rights to learn more about the struggle and also the triumphs that have come from that, and also the ongoing questions around race and identity here today. In the same way, or in a similar way, why do you think your professor gave you the language of Chinese as a vista to understanding an entire continent? Because the history of Asia, the ancient history of Asia, was substantially written in Chinese. He was giving me a platform to understand Asia, which turned out to be true. He also, by the way, I left out one sentence, he added, um, he says, and maybe Chinese might be useful after this war is over. <laughs> so which was very prophetic, incredibly prophetic. This was the early 1970s. and this was 1970. It was 1970, exactly. May 1, and there was April 30th, the invasion. So I remember these dates with incredible clarity because of the invasion of Cambodia, the expansion of the war, and then the conversation I had with the Harvard professor, Professor Woodside. So almost exactly nine years after that conversation, almost an entire decade after he predicted, he guided, and he transformed one part of your life. Um, Deng Xiaoping went to right. the United States. Right. And when he met with Jimmy Carter after the normalization a few weeks after in late right. January 79, they talked about war. They talked about Cambodia. They talked about Vietnam. <clears throat> they talked about China, Japan, and also World War II. And I think they talked about it so that they would ensure that in normalizing the Chinese-US relationship, they would not be responsible for any wars between them. Is that correct? Well, clearly, again, the, we forget over time that the basis for the US-China relationship then was an anti-Soviet alliance, that the existential threat to both China and the United States was the Soviet Union. And the reason Nixon opened in 72 and then Carter established diplomatic relations on January 1, 79, was to cement the anti-Soviet alliance which would, in their view, prevent war. You've talked also this morning about, and your fellow speakers, talking about the capacity of both governments to set things back on track. Let's rewind, because why, of course, they talk about this is the relationship is at a very tricky, some say warring stage. I think you use the word warring yourself. Um, the China-United States relationship, and there is a tendency and a danger to do this 40 years after, is to look at it through the historical lens purely rather than addressing what the contemporary challenges really are and continuing to emerge to be. Climate change being one of them, and you yep. pointed that out very strongly. Uh, China has moved strongly with the United States. And we all remember that time with Ban Ki-moon and President Obama and President right, in Xi Paris. in Paris. And all that seems to be unraveling. Surely we can't say it's just about the current administration. What's been the undercurrent that has brought these two countries from celebration to a point which Jimmy Carter says is a modern Cold War that's not inconceivable? Well, it's numerous factors. Uh, some factors are changes in the United States, uh, which lead us to want to look for a cause for the problems in the United States. Some are Chinese policies that have strengthened those in the United States who want to characterize 
the relationship as strategic rivals. So it's a combination of what both governments have done. What's most troubling in this era is it's much deeper than just the government. That in the United States, it's very much academics, think tanks, businesses, which formerly were supporters of constructive U.S.-China relations, are not today. That they have, when things, people should protest. I mean, when, when Chinese students are denied visas, my view is everyone, think tanks, academic institutions, the business community should protest because ultimately that's terrible for the United States. That's bad for the United States. Forget that it's bad for U.S.-China relations. It is bad for U.S.-China relations, but it's bad for America as the bright shining city of the hill of educate, on the hill of education. But we don't have, people protest, but it's not the, in the numbers and in the, the, the strength that one would expect because many Chinese policies have, in effect, um, made those who formerly supported constructive relations unhappy with China and giving up on China. I'm sure that in your very influential personal capacity, but also in your professional role as president of the National Committee, that you go out and you speak to people, you engage with the communities whether it be business or academic or political, and what do they say? So you go to them and you say it's not right, and they say, Steve, comma. Well, I mean, the business community, which is really the, was the ballast for the U.S.-China relationship, has gotten tired of hearing promises which are not implemented. From? From China. That you heard today talk about China's entry into the WTO, and 17 years later, the commitments are not fulfilled. We will, you heard Craig Allen talk about the uh, government procurement agreement that they would adhere to as soon as possible. 17 years is not as soon as possible. It's getting late. We hear many commitments which ultimately are not implemented. I mean, as an eternal optimist, somebody who's seen the changes that I have seen in 40 years, I still believe they will be implemented. I believe that a lot of the promises that are made will ultimately be implemented, implemented, but there's a great frustration in the business community, and that's reflected then in the business community not taking as strong a stand as they would have otherwise on issues relating to the U.S.-China relationship. Academics, the academic community, as a result of crackdowns on education in China, as a result of denying visas to academics from the United States who have written negatively about China, as a result of, at times, the Chinese government uh, trying to influence academic discussions in the United States, has caused the academic community, which used to be so strong in its support, to become divided. There still are those who support constructive relations, but there are many who don't speak out. There are many who believe we should have reciprocal policies, where if the Chinese don't allow something, then the, the U.S. shouldn't allow something. So if the U.S. government, if USIA wants to set up like America corners in different Chinese universities around China, they're not able to do that. But China has over 100 Confucius Institutes in the United States, and they say, Let's have it, let's it be reciprocal. So if China doesn't allow America to do it, then America should prevent China to do, to do it. Journalists believe that they are not treated well in China. American journalists, 
I mean, if I had a dollar for every time an American journalist is is uh, invited to Hucha to have tea with uh, public security, I would have a lot more money than I do because it's done far too often. The interference in foreign journalists' work in China is substantial. So that's led the U.S. government now to require CCTV and Xinhua to register as foreign agents. You know, in there, the risk is that that's then going to become reciprocal restrictions, which, are, which is extremely damaging. But these communities, which formally supported constructive engagement, aren't now. What I said about academics applies to think tanks. They get tired of having conferences canceled. They get tired of having things they write in English translated into Chinese and not translated accurately. So they are no longer as strong a supporter as they are. What's lacking, and it, these are not good policies. These policies are not in China's own interests. But what's lacking in the United States is putting those policies in context. That you know, is China seeking to replace the United States as the world's leading power? The answer is it's really not. Chinese government is interested in maintaining stability in China and maintaining their power, which does not mean replacing America as the number one power in the United States, that Chinese history, culture, and current problems dictate what they're going to do for the coming 50 years. Um, but the problem is, you know, it's the constituencies on both sides that were supporters before are not supporters today. One of the hallmarks of the 40 years, and bearing in mind everything that you just said, has been trust, farsightedness, and the bravery and courage required to make historic decisions, as these two men did off their own backs in December 78, leading to January right. 1st, 79. Are there the right people in positions of influence right now? And I'm not saying presidents, but also through communities who are able to do that. And is there the same incentive if they do feel discouraged, as you said? Well, you're asking me, are there the right people in place? I always believe in the United States government, and I've believed it for many years, we don't have sufficient China expertise at senior levels. So you can go throughout the Chinese government and find people who have studied in the United States. They actually know the United States pretty well. They, some of them talk to me in English. Some of them talk to me in Chinese. But there is this experience, except for Elaine Chow today, who at senior levels of the U.S. government really knows China. I mean, Elaine is Chinese. She, you know, she's born in Taiwan. She you know, obviously speaks fluent Chinese. Uh, but her responsibility is not China. Uh, but I felt that in the Obama administration. You know, I felt, you know, how many... So Cui Tiankai will be here tomorrow. Cui Tiankai can communicate to the American people in English and understands America extremely well. He becomes a force for constructive engagement. Uh, I think you have to go pretty far back to find the equivalent American in China who can speak to the Chinese people in Chinese and convey what is going on. You said that you were noticed and hand-selected because of your linguistic abilities. 
a rare Chinese-speaking. Well, there were no, there were no, uh, there were no other Chinese-speaking lawyers in the United States government. Do you think that there are many more now today? No, I think they're not. So that hasn't especially changed.、No. Some people would look and say that this is an example of where.、Uh, Chinese students have come to the United States in droves. That the United States opened up its educational gateway and allowed them to truly flourish, not only in their careers but also in their lives. Has the same been said or the reverse? Much smaller numbers. So, whereas we have three hundred and fifty thousand Chinese students here in the United States, we have twenty thousand American students in China. And why is that? Is that due to lack of interest or lack of openness? Well, partly. I mean, the the Chinese students are not coming here to work on U.S.-China relations. Yes, they're coming here to because we have the best university system in the world, and you know. Learning English for a Chinese is fundamental to their existence, whereas for an American, learning Chinese is not fundamental. So, for them to go to to China、um, and study is often difficult because the, most of the courses are not taught in Chinese. One of I think one of the programs I've been associated with, and what has been fabulous in that regard, is the Schwarzman Scholars Program at Tsinghua University, that bringing not only Americans but Brits and French and Japanese and people from all over the world to China to study at Tsinghua for a year will give them all. So these are future leaders. Will give them all the experience of having lived in China, and they won't be China scholars, but they will at least have some、uh, knowledge of what has gone on. Kind of like if you think about the Rhodes Scholarship in England, which has been around for a hundred years. The Americans that have gone there and have understood the UK as a result of that and come back to the United States into leadership positions has been fantastic, including、uh, President Clinton, who was a Rhodes Scholar. I want to end on an optimistic note because optimism must be a necessary emotion in order to find a way forward. You've talked about being deeply troubled by the current course. You say that the people will pressure their governments to emphasise what they share in common. But let's take the long-term view of this. You started off by talking about war and conflict, and the point was made today that there has been no battlefield on which American soldiers have lost their lives in East Asia since 1979, since China and the United States chose to normalise. Their relationship. What ground does that give us going forward, and how should we apply it on every side? Well, you know, I think we've lost sight in the United States of how tumultuous Asia was、um, up till 1979. You know, and the number of deaths of Americans, and how it has been since then. That in all the discussions, all of the people attacking the establishment of diplomatic relations, all of the people attacking the the, the policy of engagement that the United States has had, they don't point out Americans stopped dying. That's a huge deal. I went to Asia in '72, when it was Americans were dying by the day. In Vietnam, so I think maybe it's a product of the people who are making this policy weren't around during the war in Vietnam. They're younger, though. President Trump is older. He certainly was around then.、Um, I think that the demonization of China 
the cost of that demonization is not fully recognized. And the cost of kind of the, con the policies that China is following towards the United States are not fully recognized in China. And that's why I always say, in the end, you know, in New York, the reason I talk so much about climate change is I was flooded out of my home during Superstorm, Superstorm Sandy. So I saw what climate change did to New York City. I see that Shanghai sits on the bank, banks of the Yangs and not very much above it. So climate change is going to have a devastating effect. And there will be incidents. There will be some storm that happens that's going to require governments to get together. Same is true of pandemics. Whether it's a new SARS or a new Ebola or something, there's going to be an event which requires the United States and China to work together. It can't predict what it's going to be, but it's going to come. Or there'll be a, sadly, there'll be a terrorist incident where the United States and China are going to have to work together. Or the economic crisis, the trade war will deteriorate so much that the people in the United States or in China will recognize that we need to cooperate. Ultimately, this demonization is not the majority of Americans and it's not the majority of Chinese. It's a small group that believes that this is in the national interest. I don't question their belief. I just believe it is fundamentally wrong. And ultimately, it's the I take the New York subway every day, and I watch how the subway doesn't work. And it doesn't work anymore because we as a country, we as citizens of New York City and New York State, have failed to invest. And that, in part, is due to the fact that we spend $700 billion on military expenditures, which have no benefit to the infrastructure of the society. So people are going to recognize that, and they're going to ultimately tell the government, we can't go down this path. We need to go down a path of cooperation. And that will happen one day. I can't tell you if it's going to happen next month or next year, but I'm sure it will happen, because ultimately, in both countries, it's the people that are going to tell the government what to do. And having worked on people-to-people -people exchanges between the United States and China since the committee hosted the Chinese ping-pong team in 1972, we know that those bonds are strong, and they're going to pull the two countries together. So that's why, in the end, I'm an optimist. I just hope that when you talk about sharing data on a health pandemic or reversing the effects of the trade war, or whether it be terrorism or climate change, that it won't be too late, that there won't be too many people who would have been caught up in it before they finally realize. Sadly, I think it will require a crisis that's going to pull us back together. It's, it's Right now, it's very tough to win the narrative. It's very tough to persuade people that this confrontation has enormous cost to society. And it's funny, I was... It, it was I was reading the national defense strategy uh, when I was on the subway. As I said before, I commute on the subway every day. And one out of 10 times, uh, the subway breaks down. So you just sit on the subway and people, and I look around at the people on the subway 
as I'm reading this national defense strategy. And it saddens me because these people who are just going to work to be hospital orderlies, to work at CVS, to do these very simple jobs are paying the price for this bad strategy. They just don't know it. Steve Orleans, thank you very much for putting this into a context of people and the struggles that many people face today. Pleasure.